Hey everyone, welcome to Grace Community Church of Willow Street's podcast. If you have any questions or want to learn how to be more engaged with our church, check us out online at gccws.net, or you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy today's message, and we are praying that it leads you into a growing relationship with Jesus. Good morning, Grace Church. It's good to see everybody. Let's pray together. Our Father, Alyssa and the worship team sing songs about Jesus. We were reminded this morning that Jesus is the epitome of your love. If we would define love, we would look at Him and yourself, this great gift that you gave us that we didn't deserve when Jesus became human. That's why we celebrate Christmas. And Father, when we see Jesus, we understand more about what you're like. Your love is unconditional. Your love is consistent. Your love is not fickle and given to sentiment and feelings. Your love is by choice and demonstrates action. So, Father, we humbly ask that you would show us what that love is like even this morning as we worship, as we hear your word preached, as we pray, as we look to you. Father, we realize that this love, this steadfast love, reaches in to our hearts and our minds, wanting to make us different from the inside so that we can reflect your Holy Spirit, the characteristics of even you, where we become more loving, we become more patient, more kind, where we are willing to trust you for the most intimate details of our lives, where we meet you in the midst of suffering and loss, and grief, where we are able to experience joy rather than happiness, where our contentment is not based on circumstances. Father, this is a a gritty love that you call us to, a love that's not Pollyanna or simply for inside the walls of a church. We pray, Father, for, for ourselves this day. We're thankful that You do not leave us alone. You give us your Holy Spirit. You give us your word. You give us the person to our right and to our left, reminding us that we don't walk alone in this life. We need each other and we need you. So, Father, teach us about your love this morning. We realize, Lord, that your love also goes outside of these walls, not just in Lancaster County and Pennsylvania and the United States, but around the world. To that end, we pray especially for our friend Beth Grimm as she prepares to go to Guatemala in January to teach and test children and then to share the love of Christ with them. Lead, guide, and director, thank you for her years of experience with ministry and missions. We also pray this morning, Father, that you would draw us close to yourself as your word is spoken. Speak through Pastor Paul 
as he relies on your Holy Spirit. Also continue to guide us as Pastor Mike guides us and the ministry council gets wisdom from you. So Lord, be glorified this day. Be seen for who you really are. Minister to our point of need and then draw us closer to yourself. We love you very much. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, scripture reading, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Well, thank you, Pastor Steve, for your words and certainly for your prayer. I just want to know, how many of you have all your gifts bought, purchased, wrapped under the tree? We don't like you people. Just, man, it is hard to be loving this morning with you in the room. Got to be honest with you. You could worship somewhere else while the rest of us still pick up, you know, the fact that we haven't bought a single gift yet and we still need to do some shopping and then wrapping. And probably on Christmas Eve, you know, we'll finally finish around 4 o'clock in the morning. But to be honest with you, no, I'm just joking. You know, when you get these gifts, though, they all come with warning labels, don't they? Now, how many of you really, though, read warning labels? There are, see, every service, there's some of you. And I, again, you're like the people that wrap presents before Halloween. I don't understand you. <laughs> warning labels. I was reading some warning labels the other day, and it just kind of dawned on me that there are some people that should come with warning labels, Right? Like when your children come out of the womb and they are born, there should be a little tag there that says, just to warn parents, we'll vomit at the worst time possible, right? But God doesn't do that, and I don't understand. When we get to heaven, I'm going to ask him, why don't they just have a little tag on the bottom of their foot that says those kinds of things? There are some people, though, that should, as you interact with them in public or at your work, should come with a warning label, like, warning, we'll make a mess, or warning, not all with it, you know? 
That would be helpful. We would understand you a lot better. Maybe for Christmas you can get a shirt that just simply says, warning, I was raised in New Danville. And then we would understand you. We would understand you. If you're not from around here, you're with us for the very first time. Our lead pastor is from New Danville, which explains everything about him. Okay, there we go. But seriously, though, there are some warning labels that if folks came with, it would help us prepare a little better for them, wouldn't it? Like, warning, prone to pride. Or, warning, patience not included. Or, warning, will hold grudges. Warning, won't hold up during difficult times. Or how about this? We'll love when it's convenient. You know, Love Came Down is the title of this sermon series that we're going to be launching into for our Advent series. It's the title because it reminds us that Jesus Christ loved us. The Father loved us. The Holy Spirit of God loves us so much that the Son of God came to the earth in the form of a baby so that you and I could be lifted up and come to know our Heavenly Father in a real and personal relationship, that we could come to know the love of God. This series is going to dive deeply into the love chapter of the Bible, a.k.a. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And as we unpack this single chapter over the next course of weeks, listen, we are hoping that you will walk away understanding a biblical definition of love, understanding what Jesus did to love us, but also to help instruct and teach us as followers of Jesus Christ how we can love like Jesus so that we don't have to walk around with warning labels. That's what we're looking at the next several weeks. And so as we kind of jump into this sermon today, I want us to dive into the beginning parts of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, friends, i got to give you a little bit of a warning here. Oftentimes, 1 Corinthians 13 is misread and misapplied. Misread in the sense that we often tend to read this chapter outside of its intended context. The context of 1 Corinthians 13 is actually 1 Corinthians, the church in Corinth. And I love what Gordon Fee, the late Bible scholar, says about 1 Corinthians 13 when he writes this. The love affair with this love chapter has allowed it to be read regularly apart from its context. The key word there being regularly. We regularly, we often read it outside of its intended context. What's the context? Well, Paul is writing to a church in Corinth, a very multi-generational, very talented, a very gifted, a very passionate church, much like Grace Community Church. And he's simply saying to them, listen, you have some problems, and I want to address them. And one of the major problems that this church had was that somehow they had decided that there were certain people that were more important than other people. I don't know if you've ever done that. Have you ever determined that some people are more important than other people? We all do it. People that go to Wawa versus people that go to other places. I hold them in high esteem. Amen? 
wrong with the church? What's wrong with the church? The, the Corinthians had done this. They had begun to elevate certain personalities above others. And so Paul writes to them in this letter known as 1 Corinthians to help correct this view. And, and how did they create this scale? This is the interesting part. You know, when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, Christ doesn't just save you and then stop. He actually gives you his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God takes up residence, this is what Scripture teaches, in your life and begins to dictate the way that you lived your life, begins to correct you, begins to help you to understand the Scriptures. The Spirit of God teaches you the Word of God. That's what it says. The amazing thing is, is that the Spirit of God also gives you a gift, a spiritual gift. Spiritual gifts are like the gift of preaching, teaching, administration, uh, mercy, uh, prophecy, all these kinds of spiritual gifts. They're given by the Holy Spirit. And so every believer either has one spiritual gift or multiple spiritual gifts. If you're interested in knowing what your spiritual gifts are, by the way, we actually have a class called Finding My Place. It actually teaches you what your spiritual gift is. Well, in the church of Corinth, they decided that there were people that had certain spiritual gifts that were more important than other spiritual gifts. And so they elevated those folks. Well, Paul writes to say, look, you've got it all wrong. The greatest gift that anyone could have is the gift of love. That's what he says. And so look at how Paul begins to write 1 Corinthians 13 by looking at chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 13 actually falls in the context of chapter 12 and chapter 14. Look at the end of chapter 12. Look at the very last sentence that is used there that Paul uses. He says, Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. What's he about to talk about in 1 Corinthians 13? A better way of living. A better way. A better gift. And look at chapter 14. Look at how he begins chapter 14. He says, follow what? The way of love. You see, the greatest gift that Paul would argue isn't the gift of, you know, the tongues or administration, all those kinds of things. He would say the greatest gift among you is the gift of love. You see, 1 Corinthians 13, though, isn't just often misread outside of its context of spiritual gifts. It's also misapplied. You know, the only time I hear about 1 Corinthians 13 is typically at weddings. And I don't know why. You go to a wedding, and suddenly now the preacher or the government official, whoever it is that's residing over to the service, decides that now we should read, have a reading from 1 Corinthians 13. And they misapply it. Because if the only time you utilize the truth that's found in 1 Corinthians 13 is during weddings, you're missing it. This is a truth that teaches you and I how to love daily, daily, not just once or twice or, I don't know, if some of you probably go to like 10 weddings a year. I'm only usually invited to like one or two, so you know, you're more popular. But the reality is, is Paul wants us to read these daily and apply this to our life on a regular basis. Why? Because Paul will argue that Christians can't live without love. We can't live without love. And that any gift of the Holy Spirit requires love. Now you understand why Paul begins the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13 by talking about spiritual gifts. And what he says about those gifts is that without love, they don't mean anything. You notice the first three verses, he talks about four gifts. The gifts of tongues, the gift of prophecy, 
The gift of what? Faith and the gift of giving. And the first gift that he brings up here is the gift of tongues. Notice what he says about the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues without love, Paul will say, is meaningless. It's meaningless. Meaning that you and I, we can give the greatest speech we've ever wanted to give, and without love, it's meaningless. Look at what he says here in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Some people have tried to figure out here, what does he mean by speak in tongues of men or angels? He's talking about a spiritual gift of tongues that's described in chapter 12. And his point isn't to get hung up on trying to figure out what tongues is here. His point is to simply say, the gift of tongues without love is meaningless. And I appreciate how Leon Morris, the Bible scholar, quote, talks about this verse when he says this. No language in earth or heaven is to be compared with the language of love. Meaning, love gives our words meaning. You know, you can say all you want, but without love, your words are meaningless. To borrow a common phrase among us and to twist around a few of the words to help fit the context, no one cares how much you have to say until you say it with love. Amen? That's Paul's point here. That's why he says you can give the greatest speech on earth or in heaven, and no one cares unless your words are full of love. It's interesting. He says if your words don't have love, you're like a what? A gong or a cymbal. I was at the Collingswood Parade in Collingswood, New Jersey, and all the New Jersey people said, like, you guys mumble about it. You're like, ah, see, you're not even proud of your own state. I don't even understand it. There's not much to be proud of, to be honest with you, but, I mean, we'll move on from there. I lo- you know, that wasn't very loving, was it? You're, going, you're proving the point, Paul. It's interesting. There's all these bands that go by in this parade. It's a big parade, you know, lots of people. All these bands go by, and there's, there's always, they always put the, the gong and the cymbals in the back, you know? And some of these bands are really talented. Like the Camden High School band came by, and oh my, those kids knew how to play. There's a couple other bands that are walking by, and you watch them come by, and they're playing all in harmony. There's one kid who is just totally lost. You know, he's, I, this would have been me. He's like, food, candy, snacks, oh, bang, you know? And it's like, off key, it's out of, it's like, you're not even, I'm not even a really good musician, but you can just tell that guy, he doesn't care about a lick. And that's what Paul's saying. If you speak without love, your words are just like clanging instruments together. Now, to the ears of the first century church, though, this would have meant a little little something different. Gongs and cymbals were often used in cultic worship, particularly in Corinth. And so Paul is simply saying that if your words don't have love, it's almost like you're following the wrong religion. You're beating the drum of another god. You're not not playing in tune with Jesus. You see, the gift of tongues without love is meaningless. But Paul doesn't stop there. He moves on to talk about the gift of prophecy. And it's here he says that the gift of prophecy without love 
is useless. It's useless. Look what he says in verse 2. If you have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, look how he ends the verse, I am nothing. Now, what is prophecy? Prophecy, apparently, according to this context, is someone who has the ability to fathom things. They can fathom mysteries where other people can't. They have the ability to see their way through a situation because they have a certain knowledge that is apparently given by the Holy Spirit. Other people apparently don't have that ability. And yet Paul will say that no matter how much knowledge, how much fathoming you can do, how much prophesying you can do, without love, your prophecy is useless. To say it in common tongue, no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. That's what Paul's point is. No one knows, no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. He's not done though. He talks about the gift of faith next. And he says, The gift of faith without love is worthless. Look at the second half of verse 2. Paul writes, If I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. I'm nothing. In a sense, what does he mean by this ability to move mountains? He's talking about the impossible. They had the ability to believe the impossible. And Paul says, even if you have that kind of spiritual gift, without love, your gift is worthless. We shouldn't have you on the team. In other words, no one cares how much faith you have until the faith you have has love. Has love. Imagine for a second you're living in 1 Corinthians, in the church in Corinth, And someone shows up to the church, and they say to the church leaders, listen, we want your best people. We want your best people. We have this secret mission for Jesus that we want to take your people and use them to plant another church. And so the Corinthians, you know what they would do? They would go to their best people. They would go to the people that could speak in tongues, the people that had the ability to prophesy, the people that had the the faith to move mountains. And they would say to those folks, listen, There's a special mission, and we want you to be a part of it. You're really skilled, really talented. Now, if they allowed the Apostle Paul to pick that team, do you think he would pick any of those people? No, he wouldn't. The people that Paul would pick are the people that can love. They might not be the best spoken. They might not know everything. They might not even at times have, well, they might just have little faith. Well, Paul would say, you know what sets them, sets them apart? They can love. They can love. The best churches are made up of people who aren't necessarily the most gifted or talented, but they're the ones that can love. Because as Paul says in verse 2, without love, we're nothing. We're nothing. And yet there's one more gift that he wants to talk about here. It's the gift of giving. This is kind of extreme, but Paul will say this. The gift of giving without love is pointless. It's pointless. Look what he says in verse 3. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. This final spiritual gift is the ability to give all that someone possesses. That's what he says here. 
And it's even to the point of hardship. Some scholars actually think that the person that Paul is referring to would be willing to even have their body burned or to sell themselves into slavery and then, sell the pro- and then give the proceeds back to the poor. They'd be willing to go to that extent. That's what their giving looked like. It was a sacrificial kind of giving. And yet Paul makes the point that even if you are willing to go that far, your giving without love is pointless. Even if we give our bodies to hardships that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing, he says. It's worthless. Why? Because the only reason apparently this person was giving was not out of love, it was out of pride. They gave so they could tell other people about it. They gave generously so they could brag about it later. They donated so they could have their name written or carved into stone. And yet Paul would say, that even if you gave it all to the point that it hurt and you boasted about it, you've gained nothing. You've gained absolutely nothing. In a sense, no one cares how much you give until what you give is given in love. And Jesus actually makes the same point in Matthew chapter 6 when he talks to us about private spiritual disciplines. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. In a sense, don't give and boast about it later. Jesus actually says this. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the street corners to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give... Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Will reward you. It's not about, in a sense, how much you give. It's were you a loving person as you gave it. Paul says if you don't do that, it's pointless to give in the, at all. You know, sometimes in church, we can create pecking orders. We can prioritize certain personalities or certain people over other people. We can say, oh, if the church lost this person or this person or this person, we'd be doomed. And instead of saying the only important person in our midst is one person, and his name is Jesus. From time to time, I walk around and I look for examples of this. You know, my wife and I have greatly appreciated all your prayers and support, certainly for our family. Particularly, many of you know and you prayed for Caitlin, who was hospitalized in October with RSV for a week. And we're thankful for your prayers, thankful that she's doing much better. She was walking around before the service. I don't know if you know this, but when Caitlin got to the hospital about a couple days after that, then Carolyn was doing cartwheels in the front yard and then fractured her elbow. So she was in a cast. And then about a week and a half after that, I was downstairs fixing a leak in our basement and ended up slicing and filleting open my pointer finger here. And I had to have five stitches and hold my hand up like this for like two weeks so that the blood wouldn't throb. It was just been one heck of a month, you know what I mean? <laughs> but while we were at Penn State Hershey Medical, I was completely blown away by something. There's a hallway at Penn State Hershey Medical. You walk down the hallway and you see these people in portraits And they're dressed very nicely. Some of them suits. Ladies are wearing dresses. Hair is all done really nicely. The interesting thing about these pictures is they're holding like paintbrushes in their pictures. They're holding brooms and they're holding mops. 
They're, holding, they're pushing carts or they're holding books. And, and you walk by these portraits of these people and you think, what kind of art is this? Is this modern art, you know, which I don't really understand? And so you, you kind of get to the end, and then they have this sign that explains the whole thing. And this is what the sign says. I wrote this down. It says, when one's, what, what one sees in prominent hospital hallways are portraits of department heads, founding physicians, or board presidents. Important as these people are, hospitals would not be able to care for anyone without the person who registers patients, cleans the floors, keeps the air conditioning cooling, transports people from the parking garage to the front desk, and patients from rooms to laboratories, chip off paint peeling, or feed visitors in the cafeteria. You know, it strikes me that a hospital would get the principle that Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 13. It strikes me that a hospital would understand that there's no pecking order between physician and the janitor. Everyone contributes to the same goal. And in the local church, that should be true of us, shouldn't it? That we don't create pecking orders. Matter of fact, we create one order to worship Jesus Christ. Why? Because Christ came out of a deep love for us. And so as a result, there's only one great gift. It's the gift of love that we share with one another. Amen? You know, as we kind of take a step back this Christmas, I want us to begin to not look at the presents and all those kinds of things, but to begin to ask ourselves Really, are we like Jesus? Do we love like Jesus? Or have we elevated certain personalities and people because they have the ability to have good sermons or good speeches or they teach well? Do we elevate those who hold all the knowledge or those who can believe the impossible or those who give generously? You think about it. You can share the best message you've ever had, but without love, those words mean nothing. The only reason you're doing it is so you can be heard. You can, have all, you can fathom all things of this world. You can believe all impossibilities. And yet without love, Paul would say, you know what, friends? That knowledge is useless, and that faith is pointless. The only reason you're doing it is so you can be seen. But you can give, and you can give, and we can give, and yet if we are not a loving church, our generosity is worthless. The only reason you were doing it is because the giving was about you. And so as we enter into this Christmas season, ask yourself this morning, does your love need to be heard? like those who have the gift of tongues? Does your love need to be seen like those who have the gift of prophecy and faith? Is your love all about you, like those who had the gift of giving? There's one thing about Jesus Christ. He came in the form of a baby, humbled himself, let go of his grasp of glory, and came to the earth. And in a sense, you almost want to take a step back and ask, what would it require of Jesus to love you and I like that? 
What did it require of Jesus to love us like that? You know, in the next few weeks, we're going to actually define biblical love. I just kind of want to take a step back and look at that bigger picture and say, what did it require of Christ to make that trip? And what would it require of us to make the same journey to other people? And the first requirement that you find in the Bible of love is that love requires a choice. It requires a choice. You know, in the context of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is talking about spiritual gifts. How interesting is it that in chapter 12, we learn where spiritual gifts come from. They come from the Holy Spirit. In chapter 12, verse 7, this is what it says. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. That would be the good of everybody. Verse 11, he says, and all of these are the work of one and the same Spirit. The Spirit distributes them to each one just as he determines. The interesting thing about the Corinthians is they've forgotten the fact that the Holy Spirit chooses your spiritual gift. But you know what we get to choose? Not our gift, but the love. You see, love requires a choice. Every individual has to decide whether or not they want to love. And when you look at Jesus Christ... He made that choice. I choose to love you. I choose to love you. I appreciate what Tim Keller writes when he says this. We don't fall in love. We commit to it. Love is a choice. It's a commitment. Sadly, though, we have forgotten the fact that because Christ loved, now we get to choose to love. That's what it says in 1 John 4.19. We love Because he loved us. Biblical love requires a choice. Secondly, when you take a step back and you look at love as it's described in the Bible, particularly in Christ coming down to earth, you discover that biblical love requires action. It requires action. Christmas can be confusing, can it? Because all of a sudden, all the TV shows, all the celebrities, all the newspapers, all the media starts talking about love as a feeling. And I kind of thought for a second, well, how in the world did they understand that love is a feeling? Well, then I Googled it, and that's where I figured out they learned it from. Because a Google search teaches that love is a feeling of intense affection, a great pleasure or enjoyment. And if you read that definition from Google, you would know, yeah, they all got it right. Love must be a feeling. And yet, when you look at the Bible, you realize that love is not a feeling. Love is actually an action. It requires an act. You see, our culture has gotten this wrong. And I want you to lean into this for a second. The culture teaches that you have to feel in love before you act in love. The Bible teaches the opposite, that we act in love, and then the feeling comes. You don't start with the feeling And if you look at Jesus, that's exactly what he did. He acted in love. He wasn't concerned about feeling in love. There's many times where, let's be honest, we don't feel like loving. But the word of God commands us to love. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 14. This is what Paul writes. Let all that you do be done in love. He doesn't say let all that you feel be done in love. No, it's all that you do. Love requires this action. Colossians 3.14. And above all these, put on love. 
Love is something that you do. It's something that you put on. That's what the Bible teaches. Interesting enough, John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You might not feel like laying down your life today for a friend. But love requires an action, not a feeling. 2 John chapter 6, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. Do you hear that? Love requires an action. It's what you do. It's what you put on. It's what you're willing to lay down. It's how you're willing to walk despite how you feel. Love truly is like Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson, in his devotional, Love Came Down, writes this. If 1 Corinthians 13 contains a description of love, it must ultimately be a description of Jesus. Love is being like Jesus. Jesus chose, and then Jesus acted. And then finally, in the scriptures, we see that Jesus had an open heart. Do you know love requires an open heart? It requires that our heart be like God's heart. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul uses the word love eight times. Eight times, and he uses the same Greek word. It's the word agape. And actually, in the first century, I'm going to nerd out here for a little bit, the Greek culture didn't use the word agape. The New Testament writers actually found that word, and they're the ones who picked it up and began to use it, which is so cool. Because they were trying to figure out a way to describe how God loves us. You see, in Greek language, there's many words you can use for love. The New Testament authors grabbed the word agape to describe the way that God loves us. Why? Because literally, agape love is when you stoop down to lift someone up. It's when you have a higher regard for someone else than for yourself. And that's what we see Jesus do at Christmas. It's when he, he came down to lift us up. And so the New Testament writers call that an agape love. It's a love that is described all throughout the Bible, particularly in 1 Corinthians 13. But John also uses it in 1 John 3 to describe Jesus when he writes this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we, get this, we ought to have the same agape love. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. If anyone, and then he gives you a little bit of a glimpse into what it means to lay down your life. He says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God, hear this, be in that person? The word pity there is a Greek word that means to open your heart or to close your heart, like opening and closing a door to a friend. And in a sense, John is saying that the kind of love that Christ came to the earth with was a kind of love that had an open heart. It had an agape style to it. So look, as we jump into the next few weeks, know that love requires a choice. It requires an act but it requires an open heart. We began this message today by talking about some warning labels that some people should carry around. Why? Because if someone is prone to pride, if someone doesn't have the patience of Christ, if they hold grudges, if they won't stand up during tough times, 
And if they only love out of, in, out of their own convenience, then that person ought to have a warning label. I really want you to take a serious look at your life and at your heart, not the person sitting to your right or left. Does that describe you? And a better question would be this. Does your love need to come with a warning label? You know, the next several weeks, we're going to have the opportunity to define what love is. We're going to have the opportunity to see how Jesus loved us. But you're going to have the personal opportunity to say, I want to love like Jesus and to make some changes. You know, I think about Christ. If he showed up on your door today, he would probably show up with a warning label. And the warning label would probably read something along these lines. Something that maybe you're not used to hearing, but it would be, warning, will lead you where you don't want to go, will ask of you what you don't want to give, but will love you when you don't deserve it. If you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, man, I don't love like Jesus, know this, he loves you anyway. He loves you enough to tell you, and he loves you enough to help you to love like him. That's our prayer this Advent season, that we would be a church not of pecking orders, but a church that is known of helping people to love like Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you that we have the joy. We have the joy to open up your word and to read your word and to study your word and to know what your word says for the purpose of having our hearts laid open. Not to be entertained, but that, Lord, we could look more like your son, Jesus. I thank you, Father, for that. I thank you that as we look at your word, you will teach us how to love. As we look at your word, you will teach us how to love like your son. It is my prayer that, Father, we would not go into this Advent series with a closed heart, but we would go in it with an open heart, not to say I've heard the same thing over again, but to say, Jesus, we want your word to speak and to move us in ways we never thought possible. Father, we thank you. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you for your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would now begin to move in our minds and our hearts, prepare us for Advent this year. In the strong name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for listening to today's message and choosing to spend some time with us today. To get more information about Grace Community Church, our service times, and our location, check out our website at gccws.net.